is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, Allison. Hi, bro. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. I'm good, because we're going to close out the year with a great big mailbag episode. Today, we're going to offer advice to Mike's mom to help her get back on track after being burned by some financial advisors. We're going to help Don understand the tax advantages and implications of dividend-paying stocks. And we'll answer Christy and Steve's questions about determining the right number of stocks to own. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, our first question comes to us from Dan. Dan writes, how do you budget food? Do you lump everything together, or do you have three categories for groceries, eating out, and alcohol? We feel that we spend too much in this area, but my wife and I just don't know what amount we should be aiming for, and less is too ambiguous. By the way, we're dual income, no kids. So, trivia question here for you, Allison. According to the Consumer <clears throat> Expenditures Survey, how much do you think the average American household spends on food? What percentage of their budget? I should warn you that I did the same research you did you before coming to the me. show. Oh, that's no. so freaking funny. <laughs> now, uh, I think you're going to get the answer I right. Think I, well, I don't know the percentage, but I can tell you that according to the BLS, we spend $6,759 on food a year. Yes. Almost 4000 of that is at home, and almost 3000 of that is uh, away from home. Right. So, percentage wise, it's almost 13% of expenses. And it's about a 60-40 split between uh, what you buy for at home and what you eat out. Alcohol, did you look that one up? I did. And I'm going to get extra credit, because I also looked Man. up how much money British people spend on dr- on drinking. So, Why British people? Because they spend a lot of money on alcohol. <laughs> and they sound so cool. So, as far as alcohol goes, do you want to share the stat, or do you want me to? Well, no, you go ahead. All right, we spend about 1% of our expenditures on alcohol, which is about an average of $545 a year. Right. Okay, so I'll one-up you on stats and just point out that it it changes over time. So the older you get, generally speaking, the more you eat at home. So that gives him a framework for what the average household spends. Um, In terms of budgeting and categories, I think it's most important to focus on the things that will be useful. So, for example, my wife and I don't drink, so it would not make sense for us to have a category of alcohol in our budget. If it sounds like this is the type of thing you know that someone is particularly struggling with, or an area where you think like, oh, this is one part of our budget that I know we should focus on, then go ahead and and do that. Um, but otherwise, I don't think it. You don't want to break out the budget in categories that aren't useful. If you look at the consumer expenditure survey, they break it out into cereals, poultry, oils, and fats. So unless you have like an olive oil thing going on, there's no need to get that granular. So I would say the advice is break it down to as many categories that are useful useful to you, but no more. Uh, so I didn't get to share my stat that while we spend four hundred and fifty four dollars on alcohol a year, British people spend how much do you think? More twelve hundred dollars. So eight hundred or seven hundred eighty seven pounds, which is about twelve hundred dollars. So they spend about three times more on alcohol per year. Wow. Right. I think that's how the math works out there. Uh, it's not not quite. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, is that I would argue. You know what I would argue though is that my husband and I spend a lot of money eating out, but that's because we get a lot of joy out of it. So, so you would do a combined food entertainment budget for that. Yeah, or I'm just not going to track it and not feel guilty and just go out and have a nice dinner with my husband now and then. 
I think I think that's fine. You know, the, really, what it comes down to is: Are you meeting your savings goals? Right. So, mm-hmm. are you contributing enough to your 401k? Did you pay off all your debt? Are you saving for college? Once you've taken care of that, then you really should go out and enjoy yourself. If you're in a situation where you're like, "Oh my gosh, I have all this debt, and I'm saving for retirement," then you got to look for somewhere to cut back, and that's when maybe you start zeroing in on some of these things. Yeah. We're going to be starting our little foodie tour of Boise, Idaho here pretty soon. Woo-hoo! I've already scoped out all the restaurants I want to go to. We've got reservations. It's exciting. All right, let's move on to the next question. Mike writes, My mom is turning 60 next year, and after single-handedly raising two kids, paying for our college education, and building a successful business from the ground up, she has unfortunately gotten a late start on saving and investing for retirement. Luckily, she is doing well financially now and has been able to save invest for the past several years. She's been using a financial advisor, but keeps getting burned on bad investments in both stocks and mutual funds, not to mention the fees commissions that are adding to her losses. So, Mike's question is, I want to convince her to ditch her money guy and go the foolish route. Given her time horizon, what specific pieces of investment advice would you give her to get her back on track and rule her retirement. Dun, dun, dun. Extra credit, Mike, for plugging rule your retirement for us. All right, what should he do? So, he says that she built a successful business, so I'm going to assume that maybe she's self-employed. Good thing about being self-employed is you can open your own retirement account, a SEP, Simplified Employee Pension, or a solo 401k. That actually allows you to contribute even more than the normal um, contribution of the miles because you're the employer, you can basically match your contributions. So you can save a lot more, take advantage of that. She's 60. She could take Social Security as early as 62. She shouldn't. She should delay it as much as possible. Quick number just from the Social Security website uh, if someone who took it at 62 got $750 a month, delay to 70, it would move up to 1320 So you're almost in her situation, she'd actually almost be doubling it because she'd be delaying it, plus she'd be working. Social Security is based on how much you make over your career, so she'd also be boosting her benefit that way. So there's two things she should certainly do, save more and delay Social Security. When you come to the financial advisor, it's actually a good time of year to do that because you're going to get those year-end statements. Um, you have the numbers there. How did the financial advisor do? How did the account do? If the statement is any good, it'll compare it to some indexes. You want to compare over the last three years, not just one year, but then you have the cold hard facts there. And if the portfolio that the advisor has created for his mother is not keeping up with a relevant index, then you should consider going somewhere else. Um, If it's an all-stock portfolio, people will compare to the S&P 500 or total stock market. It gets a little trickier if she has cash and bonds, because you don't really have an index for that. So I recommend that people compare the portfolio to a relevant Target retirement account at Vanguard. So, in her situation, it might be a Target Retirement 2025 fund. It's a mix stocks, bonds, U.S. stocks, international stocks. If he's not keeping up with that, why would you stay with him? Why would you not just go to Vanguard? Um, and the final thing I add to that is financial advisors do provide financial planning advice, like when to take Social Security, what to do about Medicare, which retirement account should you choose. The financial advisor might be providing that service. And make still make whatever fee she's paying worthwhile. If not, you can go to a company like Vanguard, and they could often help with that too. So he's suggesting that she ditch her money guy. But what if she doesn't have a love of managing her own money? Like, I don't know. I could see how she would be like, I don't want to mess with this stuff. I I think that's a great point, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a financial advisor. Some people who have been longtime Motley Fool readers or listeners think that we hate. 
financial advisors or you th- we think you should go out on your own. You certainly can do a lot of this on your own. You'd save yourself a lot of money. But some of it is complicated. It's okay to have a financial advisor, but you just got to make sure you got a good one. You shouldn't be paying significantly more than 1% a year um, to have it done, or um, they might be charging commissions, which is a whole other problem because they might be having they might be selling you things that are better for their commission than for your portfolio. Right. We've talked um, about that many, yeah, so many, many look times. Look for a fee-only advisor. Um, but if she doesn't want to do it on her own, that's fine. Just find a better financial advisor. All right. Next question. Donald in Buffalo wrote in, and he's starting to invest, and he had a few questions about dividends and taxes and all that stuff, so let's get into it. Alrighty. Number one, if I buy stocks that pay dividends, but I reinvest, never sell or withdraw, do I still pay yearly taxes on them? No, if it's in a 401k or an IRA or other tax-advantaged account. Yes, if it's outside in a regular brokerage account. You will still pay taxes on the dividends, even though you are using them to buy more shares of the stock. All right, number two. Any tax advantages between stocks versus ETFs? Uh, ETFs are exchange traded funds, a type of mutual fund, and, and what I say applies to regular mutual funds as well. And that is, a stock will either pay a dividend or not, and that's all you have to worry about. You don't pay capital gains until you sell a stock. Mutual funds and ETFs, if you own a mutual fund and within that fund the manager bought a stock at 50, sold it at 100, that's a $50 capital gain, someone has to pay taxes. They pass those taxes on to you, even if you hadn't sold the fund. And usually it ends up at happening at the end of the year. You get these distributions. If it's not in a 401k or an IRA, you owe taxes on that, even though you still held the fund, you didn't sell it. So that is a big difference. Index funds tend to do this less often, they're more tax efficient. So if you have to buy a mutual fund outside of an IRA or 401k, look for an index fund. Otherwise, keep them within your tax-advantaged accounts. All right. And last question. If I have stocks with dividends, is it wiser to put stocks in the Roth and put ETFs in a brokerage account, or both in each account, or does it even matter come tax time? It makes sense that anything that is paying dividends or going to make these capital gains distributions like funds, keep them in a retirement account if you're not yet retired. If you're years, decades away, put those in the account. Save like your brokerage account outside for something like a stock like, just as an example, Berkshire Hathaway, one that I own, uh, it doesn't pay a dividend. So I don't have to worry about the taxes on that investment until I sell it. When you retire, it's actually better to have your dividend paying stocks outside of your retirement accounts because dividends, uh, if qualified dividends, you pay a lower tax rate than ordinary income. Um, if it's outside the IRA, you pay basically a long term capital gains rate on that. If it's in your traditional IRA and then you then you take out the dividend, you actually have to pay ordinary income taxes. So it's better to keep them out when you're in retirement. All right. Next question comes from Jeff. Jeff works for a small company that is a subsidiary of a large company within da 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 Berkshire Hathaway, as you just mentioned. We enjoy good benefits of the larger company, but the investment choices for our 401k are less than desirable than how I invest in my IRA and brokerage accounts. So he wants to know, should he increase his 401k contributions to take more advantage of the tax benefits or continue the 5% contribution just to get the company match and invest elsewhere in my IRA and brokerage to get more performance? Uh, he's he's very he's doing a very smart thing. Certainly if you're 401k or 403b, whatever you have at work, is not very good. You want to take advantage of the match and then consider contributing to an IRA, as long as you're getting the tax advantages of that IRA. So a Roth, no tax break when you put the money in, but it grows tax-free. 
However, if you make over a certain amount of money, you can't contribute to the Roth. The traditional IRA, the contribution may or may not be deductible, depending on your income. When you take the money out in retirement, you pay taxes on that. So, as long as you are contributing to an IRA, you're eligible for the Roth, or you can deduct your contributions to the traditional, go ahead and do that. If he's able to get the match to the 401k, max out the IRA, and he still wants to save more, I think it makes sense to go back to the 401k because of the tax advantages. There's some other things you can borrow from your 401k. There's creditor protection in case you're worried about getting sued or anything like that. Um, the final thing I would say, though, is if he, if he does not have a great 401k, talk to his boss, talk to the HR people. They probably also participate in the 401k, so they have a vested interest in making it better. Even if you could just get in a few good index funds in the 401k, they don't charge high expenses. They tend to outperform other types of mutual funds. That can be a vast improvement to the 401k. All right. Next one comes to us from Christy. She says, I've been listening to all your podcasts. You're my faves. Thanks. And most of the other full podcasts, too, trying to get a huge crash course in this investing thing. So, because of a new job, she was able to take out an old 401k from a previous employer and opened up a Schwab rollover IRA with 23000 in it. And she has come up with a nice size watch list and already knows of a few stocks she wants to buy, even though they may be high, like Amazon, Google, and Netflix, just to name of some. So, she wants to know, how do you... How much do you really need to put toward one stock to make it worthwhile? Her mom suggests about 2000 um, which is what she did for three stocks currently. She also wants to know, is there a good number of stocks I should start with, or does that even matter? I'm going to answer this listener's question with another listener's oh, question. Let's move on to the next one. Oh, I have it right here. You do you. Okay. So, um, Steve actually asked a similar question, but, but what he did is said, this is what I'm doing, what do you think? And I think what he's doing is smart. Um, so he said that he also rolled over money from a 401k. It's about $25,000. That's less $25,000 and it's less than 10% of his savings. And then with that portion of his portfolio, he bought 10 stocks. Cuz he said so there's enough of a stake in each company, but few enough that I can keep informed. What I like about it is a couple of things. First of all, he's limiting the number of stocks to a group that he can follow. But it's not so few that his experience of investing in individual stocks is just riding on a couple of companies. There's a company with the great ticker of Joy called Joy Global. It's a farm equipment company. It has not been a joyful year for this company. They're down 65%. So if you were to just get into stock investing and look at that and you say, oh my goodness, I don't want to do that anymore. The thing is, most of us own this company. Because it's in the S&P 500. I've never even heard of it. But because it's in our mutual fund, and it's our index fund, we don't feel the pain of that 65% loss. So I think having 10 stocks at the outset is not a bad idea, because you'll have some winners and you'll have some losers, rather than unfortunately picking one or two losers, and then you're, you're kind of, forget it, I'm not doing this stock thing ever again. Mm -hmm. uh, and what did you think about her question where she said, um, how much do you really need to put towards one stock to make it worthwhile? It's really more of a, a percentage of portfolio question than an absolute dollar question. So, my standard advice, first of all, is that you probably shouldn't have more than 3% of your portfolio in any individual stock. So, it's probably important to note that 
this is not Steve nor Christie's total portfolio. Like this is a chunk of money that's part of their larger assets that they are going to be investing cuz she's she's giving money to her 401k. He's got other he's got money in mutual funds, retirement accounts presumably. So it's 1%, no more than 1% of your whole portfolio. Right, and that's the way the math would work out with Steve and certainly if you're just starting out, I think part of it is just the education of it more than the impact on your portfolio. So I would I certainly wouldn't put more than 1% of your portfolio in any one individual company. Once you become a more experienced investor, plenty of people here at the Motley Fool are very comfortable having 10-20% of their portfolio in one stock. Wow. I would never recommend that for the typical individual investor, but they're experienced, they follow these companies, they're comfortable with the risk. Of, of owning that much in one company, and if it goes down seventy percent, you lose a lot of your net worth, hopefully temporarily. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. All right, well, that's gonna do it for answering your questions. Now we're gonna move on to some comments and corrections from you guys, because you guys aren't <laughs> shy about letting us know when we're when we're Thanks, wrong. Thanks, everybody. All right, first one is Eric. Eric um, listened to our episode last week on the Fed and currency, and among other things, he writes, This is a small point and technically not an individual person, but our coins up until the beginning of the 20th century always had a lady on them. Columbia, Lady Liberty graced our coins and reminded us of our belief in liberty. Returning to such a design might help remind us of this belief system today. Instead, we are blessed with dead presidents. (laughs) <laughs> so Eric and Steve, whose letter you just read, they also both pointed out that the Bureau of Printing and Engraving prints money while the mint makes our coins. So I'm not sure who misspoke on that one. It was probably me. But apparently, okay, I, I didn't want I didn't want to say it. Thanks. It was but, me. All right, we'll just don't yeah. let it happen again. You're off the show. All right. All right. Another letter comes from Joseph. He says, "Half speed rocks." Allison, you got to check out your podcast at half speed. I was listening to your book recommendations as they flew by and tried to listen again and again, and finally I put it on half speed. What I found, aside from titles, was that you guys have a great drunken guy gal voices. It was great fun. I'm serious. So I was like, okay, really, how funny could it be? Um, and so I went and I listened, and it's it's pretty funny. I was just going to play it on my phone and get your guys' reaction. I'm thankful that we all have a higher standard of living. Uh, oh first my gosh! Let's talk a little bit about the median house. I love you all. <laughs> What's funny? I've had such wait, a wait, wait, crush wait, wait, on you. Allison, you want to hear what I sound like? Okay, let me see. This is pre- we can take it just to the back, the beginning of the show. It's pretty funny. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Molly Fool, and Jack Daniels, advisor on the Molly Fool's Fool Your Retirement newsletter. Get some. Absolutely. Everybody. Thanksgiving is just a couple days away, and today we're going to talk about... Oh, it's so funny. It's so funny. So I was sitting at my desk listening to this, and I was just like crying. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and, and folks, this is a, you have heard it first because I've never been drunk. I so. was going to say, you've never been <laughs> drunk. My, this is my drunk voice. We've all heard it first time together. Oh. 
So there. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, Joseph. That was awesome. That was an awesome, awesome find. You're right. Was, I don't know if I could listen to a whole episode, but boy, it was it was worth a good chuckle. All right, uh, we got a really nice review from iTunes, uh, and it's it's about me, so I was going to share it. Please do. Jermaeus uh, writes, this is a great podcast. The host, Allison Southwick, has an infectious laugh. You won't be able to resist it. Like others, I like all the pod- Motley Fool podcasts, but this is by far the funniest. Take that, Chris Hill. They <laughs> offer sound financial advice. I really like the one about talking to your parents about money. It's a must for your podcast library. Subscribe and love them like I do. Thank you. Uh, There's so much infectious about you, Allison, I should just say. Come on now. Come on. I've cleaned up a lot. Uh, And if you're looking to uh, give us a gift this holiday season, and I know you are, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. It helps us get higher prominence on iTunes. It just makes us feel good. It does just make us feel really good. It makes us feel good. We'll read it at half speed so it sounds like you're drunk. This is a great podcast. (laughs) And finally, bro. Yes? Maybe you thought I'd forgotten, but it's time to talk about your punishment. It's time for us to end this podcast. No, it's not. I've got like two more minutes before you have to go. All right. Finally, your your punishment. As our listeners will remember, you need some more motivation to get you to create your weekly State of the Family Finances report. Mm -hmm. And so we asked you guys to send in some punishment ideas. And David responded, and I think this is a good one. Are you ready? I'm ready. If Robert fails to meet up to his mint promise, he should have to send me $100 or more if you think necessary. Then, each week for a month, I will send the podcast pictures of me spending his money, a nice bottle of wine, tickets to see the big short for my wife and I, a gift for my son. Who knows? Maybe I'll blow a few bucks of his money in the claw machine at the local grocery. What could be more of an incentive than seeing one's hard-earned money spent by a stranger? PayPal me, David. <laughs> so what do you, we're, what we're do gonna, you think? I think we're going to do it. We're going to take him up on it. Okay. Um, the thing is, I kind of want to see those pictures anyhow, so I don't know. It sounds kind of, <laughs> sounds kind we'll of funny. But uh, I don't want to give away money, so we will do it. Um, All right. So when do you, when's the date? When do you want to pick a date that you have to have it done by, and then we're sending him a hundred dollars? The first by the first episode of the year. How's that? Okay. All right. Oh, it's gonna be tough because it's over the holidays. Mm-hmm. This is great. All right. How long and, does he have to do it for? Because it's supposed to be a weekly thing, right? That's a good point. Like, how long before you have to give up that hundred bucks? I feel like we, for some reason, talked about three months when we first started doing this. Is that true? Okay. The, that was the, two months ago. That's why you missed it already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think, really, it's all about the setup. Like, once it's set up, that's the beauty of it, right? It just automatically <clears throat> updates. Okay. So, how about this? We'll do, if you don't have it done by the first episode, you owe him $100. Uh, and for every week that you miss for the next three months, you have to send him, like, $25 or something. All right. Sounds good. Yeah? Yep. We have a deal. (laughs) You're on, David. All right, that's enough for today. A reminder, we are off next week, but don't worry, we'll be back on the 5th with an update on whether Bro did the challenge or not. And we'll also have a whole new bumper crop of shows. Let's do this all over again in 2016, shall we? I look forward to it. All right. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. The show is edited half speedily by Rick Engdahl. And for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. 
Happy holidays. Stay foolish, everybody.